Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Rafael Nadal has his 14th Roland Garros title. His 22nd major. He beat Kasparud. 6-3-6-3-6 love. Still undefeated in finals on court Philippe Chatrier. He uh, was too good for Rude in this final, put plain and simply. It is the first Monday after a major, friends. Uh, one of my, my favorite things in the world, but this will be a little bit different than it usually is. Usually I dive super deep into the match and uh, really get in the weeds of why the player who won won. This match was not particularly compelling, but don't worry. There are other things that I want to talk about, um, and I will get to breaking down the match, but there are other things I want to talk about first that I think everybody will find very compelling, potentially more compelling than a uh, breakdown of the match. That's why I made the decision that I did. But uh, in terms of the match, I will tell you uh, what I'll get into. Uh, the general dynamic of the match, how both of them played, how I would assess each performance. Uh, I want to talk about... I want to talk about why, how the Nadal forehand makes Rude miss shots. Because it's very easy to look at a match like that, and especially looking at Casper Rude, and when a player plays, when a player is ineffective, it's very easy, especially when they make errors, it's very easy to look at the player and ignore what's going on on the other side of the net and say, well, Rude is just missing where I just want to look at some things that Nadal does, that Nadal threatens Casper uh, with, that might cause Rude to miss. Uh, so there's going to be some film study a little bit later on uh, on Rude's backhand um, and what causes some of the misses on that side, uh, some of the things that Nadal does, what I would change if I were uh, coaching Rude on the backhand, a way that I think that could be better. And uh, I want to talk about Nadal's foot. Lots of revelations in the press conference about Rafa's foot and how he's going to move forward in his career. And I'm mostly going to lay out the facts and tell you guys what he said. There's not much room for my opinion here. Um, but I do have some takeaways from what Nadal said. And I, I do have a, a take about his retirement. But I want to begin this Monday match analysis after Nadal's 14th Roland Garros, would tie Pete Sampras. I always think, I think that's kind of fun. It's fun that, that Sampras got to 14 and that was the record and now someone's done it at one tournament. That's kind of crazy. I also want to point out that Nadal did this not only with like the health concerns coming in, but the draw concerns, right? And this was a factor for both Nadal and Djokovic. Their draw was it was unbalanced, it was uneven, and what happened? Rafa had to beat four top 10 players to win the title. Now, the Zverev match didn't finish, so that has a footnote, but four top 10 players, no joke. I don't. He's never done that before. It's very rare. Someone said on Twitter that it's only the third time that's happened. It's unverified. Again, just someone on Twitter, so if it's wrong, don't blame me. Um, I have an opinion about the slam race as we stand. 
2022-2020 and things have changed in in how I'm thinking about this right now. I think a couple of things have changed just in the last couple of months and I want to talk about it. I think I talked about this in Australia actually after Australia I should say. And I was just making the argument that the slam race is great for tennis. You guys know that I don't love the GOAT debate. I think it's just people twisting whatever reality there is and formulating arguments that support their player, emphasizing things and placing importance on things that make their guy look better and minimizing things that make their guy, uh, the other guy look better. I, I also think there's a lot of bashing of the fields and circumstantial stuff. And I just think it's a, it's a conversation that is generally annoying and unfruitful and um, degrading of everyone involved. But I love the slam race. I think it's good for tennis and I think it's really compelling. And I think it's something that everybody should embrace. Obviously, what was notable about Australia is just like Novak won in Rafa's at Rafa's best slam in 2021. And that set him up for Wimbledon. And we knew that he'd probably win Wimbledon. And it was almost like a like a bonus. Rafa did the same thing here. He wins in Australia. Novak's best slam. And we go, whoa, next up is Paris. He's going to be the favorite there. At least we thought at that time. Didn't turn out that way because of the, the injuries. And it happened again, right? But... That's not really my uh, my take here. My take here is that Nadal's lead in the slam race now looks much more significant than it did even at Australia. Because one of the major X factors now, I believe, in the slam race is Carlos Alcaraz. Now, after Australia... And I, I probably said this, Novak's not sweating. He's not sweating at all because Djokovic believes in his longevity. I think he looks at Rafa and I think he feels, I am going to outlast this guy. I am going to be at the top of the sport because of how well my body is holding up. I'm going to be at the top of the sport longer than Rafa Nadal. And I am going to be competing for the biggest titles in a po at a point in time when Nadal is no longer. And I think that has filled Novak with confidence about this entire thing. That's what I believe. And, you know, him losing in the Olympics and basically saying, see you in 2024, that supports my thinking there. Novak, he feels like he's going to be around for a very long time. Nadal would never say something like, see you in 2024. Because Rafa doesn't have that confidence. I think right now, though, with what has happened, there's a new standard of, of time here. Novak doesn't have that unlimited time, I don't think, anymore, depending on Carlos Alcaraz. You might say, go pump the brakes. No. I don't want to pump the brakes. Uh, this Zverev loss means has changed my opinion absolutely zero on Alcaraz. I'm talking about 
not Wimbledon. I'm not talking about Roland Garros. I'm talking about maybe this year's U.S. Open. But I'm mostly talking about 2023. That's mostly what I'm talking about. This was Alcaraz's first major ever as a seed. First major ever as a seed, okay? These are early days. The point is, he's going to be a problem. And because he's going to be a problem, it's pretty important to have a lead in this. And 2022, while Carlos is still an inexperienced teenager, is really, really important. I don't have a prediction here. I'm not making a prediction. I don't like to predict majors. This is a rule of mine. I don't like to predict majors before the draw comes out and I make my preview video. I always refuse and I still refuse. So this is not a prediction. Here's what this is. This is me saying Alcaraz is now an X factor in the slam race based on what we've seen since March. And I'm saying 2022 is extremely important, which means I feel like the start of, of this year is more important than we would have even realized. More important than I would have realized post-Australia. So I want to throw that out there. And that's just my my takeaway and my feelings right now as Nadal takes a takes a twenty uh, a two major lead over Novak in the slam race. The foot. Let's talk about the foot. Again, as I said in the preview, the key to Nadal's victory at Roland Garros 2022. The reason, at the crux of it, the reason he wasn't the favorite in the odds was the foot. And as soon as we saw Rafa playing uninhibited and at the top of his powers, you knew that there was a great chance he was going to win the title. And it was going to take another Herculean performance, probably by Novak Djokovic, um, to do so. Now, um, I mean, that semifinal with Zverev was crazy with the conditions and that uh, that that could have gotten tricky, but the point is, you favor Nadal if he's healthy at Roland Garros, always. So Nadal has um, has opened up about his foot, and here's what he said. He has received injections before every match, and that's why he was able to play this tournament. These were anesthetic injections. Let me redo that enunciation. Anesthetic injections that took away the feeling in his foot. So numbing. Painkilling is the point here. And Nadal said that this was a one-time measure. That he wouldn't do it again. Not only not just for Wimbledon, but not for the rest of his career. And he said, quote, it goes against my philosophy in life. Now, I feel like the information we got from Rafa post-match is pretty comprehensive. This is the one thing I would have loved to ask a follow-up question about. Rafa, what do you mean by it's against your philosophy in life? I would just like, uh, I would love for him to elaborate on that. Maybe we will get more from him at some point. Um, but uh, I also, I meant to Google it actually before coming on, full disclosure. I meant to look up the possible long-term side effects of anesthetic injections. I didn't get to it, but... Uh, with any drug that is that 
you know, like like a cortisone, for example, uh, a, a steroid, any kind of um, most of these drugs that have high impact, like an anesthetic injection, are not take it uh, take it every day for the next four years. Like that's generally not how this works. I meant to Google the side effects and I didn't get to it. So uh, there might be some medical. All I'm saying is there might be some medical reasons why you don't want to do that a lot. Nadal is going to have a treatment next week called radiofrequency ablation, which uses heat on the nerve. And the goal is that it quells long-term pain. How well that treatment works is going to determine if Rafa is able to play Wimbledon. He said he's willing to play on anti-inflammatories, which... A lot of people are constantly taking all the time, but he's not willing to play on those injections. So this treatment is going to be big. It's going to determine probably what the rest of his season looks like, because if the treatment doesn't work, the other option, medically speaking, is reconstructive surgery, and that is extremely invasive. It could theoretically end his career. Even if it doesn't end his career, it's a long rehabilitation process. That is where we stand right now. So all, all I really have on this is this. Look, first of all, um, Amy Lundy made this point on three. I think it was a good one. Nadal is truly fighting for his career at the moment. And in terms of this title run in itself, his ability to focus on these matches with that in the background is pretty impressive. If you think about the potential for increased internal pressure, if there was any thought for Rafa, and it seems like there has been thought, that he might not get to play another Roland Garros, those thoughts, theoretically, for most players, would be extremely detrimental to performance. That extra pressure, that extra distraction extremely detrimental. So his ability to be unfazed by that speaks to, I think, what, what he's developed as a pretty masterful ability to focus on the task at hand and to get lost in the singular competition. Second thing, I hope this settles down accusations of Nadal embellishing his injuries. And I, I suppose you could have the opinion that Rafa should just keep all this to himself. And uh, I don't agree with that opinion, but you can have that opinion. That's sort of fair. I, what I, what, what opinion I, I, I think is just wrong and clearly uh, demonstrably false is uh, that he's making it all up. You know, that, that to me is absolutely absurdity. I hope that just settles down some of the accusations uh, that I've seen on the internet of that. And it answers the questions, and, and these questions were, were fair entirely. It answers the questions about how his health was so much better so quickly after Rome. The fact is, it wasn't. Um, and, and, you know, the reason why I was skeptical about the injury and nervous about the injury is because of what we saw in 2004 and 2021. When Nadal's foot got really bad in 2004 and 2021, it was not a two-week thing. It was a six-month thing, 
It was a multiple, it was a long thing. That's why I came into Roland Garros like, eh, I don't know about this. That's why. So now we understand medical intervention. I always suspected that that might be the case. Now we know. It was always likely that he was getting help from powerful modern medicine. And I'm glad he confirmed it personally. Last point I want to make on this. Retirement. When Nadal decides to retire, never, ever expect him to do it during a trophy ceremony. I could not ever see Nadal doing it during a trophy ceremony. There were a lot of there was a lot of breath holding I felt and there should not have been because Rafa has too much respect for his opponent and the event to take that trophy ceremony and make it his retirement ceremony to make it all about himself. That is not a Rafa move. That's not the kind of thing he would do. Trophy ceremonies are not just about giving, you know, giving the champion hardware. Uh, trophy ceremonies are about honoring the tournament organizers, the sponsors, the ball kids, the umpire, the runner-up, and the champion. And the champion. So... For for if Rafa made that his retirement ceremony, obviously the world would have exploded, and uh, it would have been a a weird thing to do. Now I don't think Roland Garros would have been upset. I don't think Kasparud would have been like upset, but he would never do that. He would never make that moment all about himself. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. So I just want to throw that out there. I I. I did not think there was any chance that that was going to happen, um, and it didn't. So, uh, wishing the best for Nadal's uh, treatment next week. Hopefully, hopefully he's all good. Hopefully he can play Wimbledon. And now the match. I hope that was worthwhile leading the show with. Um, I I hope I made the right decision there to uh, not go straight to the match, but to just get those things out there. Um, I guess I'll I'll put timestamps so so that you guys could skip ahead if you if you really didn't want to hear any of that. How did they play? Let me just address that first. It it, it was a blow up. Six three six three six love. So everybody's always like, okay, let's evaluate this. What what happened here? I thought Nadal was Nadal. He was just Nadal. Uh, he was pristine in the third set. I don't think that's a hot take. But up until then. It's just normal Nadal. It was not amazing. It was not bad. Uh, I did. I would refute anyone who uh, tried to take, tried to basically put down Casper by saying Nadal is playing badly and Rude is not taking advantage. I didn't see it like that at all. Uh, I didn't think Nadal was at his best because he wasn't being pushed. And I feel like that's one of the most relatable things in all of tennis. For anyone who's ever picked up a racket and played this sport, it's pretty hard to be um it's pretty hard to play your very, very best when the person on the other side of the net isn't pushing you hard. I, I think everybody feels that from the recreational level up. It's hard to be like play absolutely awesome 
when you don't actually need to. And that is that is what was happening here. He just wasn't being pushed. So am I gonna am I gonna really like put some unforced errors and some mistakes under a microscope and be like Nadal wasn't wasn't good and Rude was worse? No. That's not how I saw the match at all. Nadal was Nadal. He played two really bad service games. Like both of the games that Rude broke were some shockers by Rafa. I mean, they were bad, bad games. But other than that, Nadal was just Nadal. It was just Nadal at his level. That's all. Baseline level. That's how I saw his game. Rude. I've seen Rude play better. Of course I've seen him play better. But I kind of struggle to criticize him here as if what we saw was a drastic underperformance based on his history and the circumstances. Casper Ruud versus top 10 opponents. Now 5 and 17 for his career. Sometimes that's misleading. You could say, Gil, is that recent? Or is that just early in his career when he couldn't win and now he's better? No. He's 2 and 8 in the last year. Now you get to the circumstances. Nadal, probably a bad matchup for him based on his backhand weakness which I'm going to break down. And you're not just playing Nadal. You're playing Nadal in the match he doesn't lose. I talked about that mental aspect. Nadal wins Roland Garros when Casper Ruud is seven. Ruud becomes a Nadal fan, goes the rest of his life watching Nadal win every single final on court Philippe Chatrier, and now he is the guy on the other side of the court. Let's, you know, I think there are some people with a makeup, a mental makeup where that doesn't matter. And they, they have the audacity to take the court and embrace the fact that have, have basically the, the self-belief, the deep rooted self-belief, despite the circumstances, despite being the underdog against Nadal in a Roland Garros final. Do I think that's really Rude's makeup? Not not really. I think one of the big places he's improved over the course of the last couple of years is self-belief. But, I mean, this is a next level. This is another level. Bad matchup. Bad circumstance. Not really threatening against the ultra-elite in general, ever. So, we're going to come down on Rude? We're going to be like, you didn't show up, buddy. Terrible match. No, that's not how I see it. He wasn't really ready. He wasn't ready. Do you know what this final reminded me of? Nadal versus team in 2018. Team wasn't ready. Team beat Rafa in Madrid that year. Nadal crushed him in Monte Carlo that year, though. I'm pretty sure everybody knew that team wasn't ready. And Nadal beat him in straights. And then guess what happened? Domi got better. He lost in four the next year. He won a major the next year. He got better and better and better. That's what happened. And Rude has a chance to do the same thing. And... Again, it's no... It's no fluke that he was in the final. Let me make that clear as well. Because one thing that Kasparud has done, 
with machine-like consistency. Consistency that very, very few players can even dream of. He pretty much beats everybody on clay outside of the top guys. Especially if you take away that weird stretch he had after making the Miami final this year. I mean, he does not lose. Look, everyone he beat, he was the higher-ranked player and the favorite in all of those matches, and he has performed very well in those circumstances. He has not performed well in the other circumstance, where he's playing a player who's ranked above him who he's not supposed to beat. He hasn't. So I can't criticize Rude that much for getting blown out here because he wasn't ready. He clearly wasn't ready. All right, the match itself. Here's where Rude was even with Rafa. Here's where Casper was actually just as good. There is an area. Serve plus one. Serve forehand. He was fine there. Serve forehand. Uh, rallies one through four shots. Serve return, third shot, fourth shot. 28 to 27 was your final count on those rallies. Nadal. Nadal won one more point. After two sets, when Nadal was up 6-3, 6-3, Root had a slight edge. Slight. So it was pretty much close the whole match. That tells me that, um, and, and you know, what that meant is that that Casper, Casper did have his serve in his forehand and um, in points that were decided within that frame, usually Casper's going to get a first ball forehand. Um, you know, in points where Casper only needed to play those two shots, he was in good shape. So was Nadal, but Casper was too. Uh, here's where Nadal pulled away. Very simple. Rallies get to neutral. So it passes four shots. The rallies get to neutral. Now Nadal can find the backhand in a baseline rally. As soon as that happened, Casper just can't hang. He can't do it. Um, Nadal won rallies five shots or more, 58 to 28, a 30 point advantage. Nadal does two things. One, he's really good at getting it to Rude's backhand. And I think the, the part of that that is universally understood is that he is a lefty. And a lefty forehand cross court going to the righty backhand. Uh, we know that a forehand cross court is generally bigger, more powerful, and just a better shot than a backhand cross court. And in that sense, a lefty always has an advantage in attacking Kasper Rude's backhand. I think the underappreciated part of Nadal is his backhand down the line. It's underappreciated probably because he does not hit it as a point-finishing weapon. He is not a Zverev or a Djokovic. It's not like that. It's not how he, try, it's not how he goes about it. Uh, but his pattern changing backhand down the line is such a key for him. And he has mastered it um, where that is what I would watch when it comes to, okay, how is Nadal getting such a, a high percentage of these points to be about rude backhand to Nadal forehand? How is Nadal getting into so many of these rallies? The way he's able to do that is uh, is very, 
very much his ability to take his backhand down the line to change the pattern. And we know that going down the line is more difficult. You have to change direction, which takes more precise timing. You have to go over the high part of the net and you have less court to hit into with the baseline being at a closer distance to where you make contact with the ball. All of these things make going down the line harder. And it means that mere mortals struggle to go down the line off of a neutral ball. It's easier for them to go down the line off of an attack, a ball that they can attack, a slower incoming ball, and then they can go line. Then they change. And that is how most players are taught from a shot selection perspective. Go cross, go cross, trade cross, get the short ball, go line. That's the simple way to make sure that your shot selection is always good. Nadal's ability to change the pattern with his backhand down the line is key. And Rude's backhand is not strong enough, his backhand cross-court especially, it was not strong enough to remain unattackable, to trade unattackable to the Nadal forehand. You know, we talked about it, uh, Rude's backhand, it is slow, very slow. It is hit with a lot of net clearance, it's high and loopy. Uh, I thought Nadal was going to live at the net. He really didn't have to. It didn't really come to that. Uh, net points won. Nadal was 17 for 22. 77%. Outstanding. Uh, but, you know, that's not that high a number. Rude was actually at the net 23 times, but only won 57%. Uh, but, you know, that's... Nadal, Nadal wasn't net rushing, forcing his way to the net. That wasn't really the plan. Uh, I, I think he would have if he needed to, if he felt uncomfortable from the back, he would have he would have done it. Um, but he didn't need to do that. Rude's backhand cross-court, we know it's slow. We know it has a lot of height and topspin. Uh, it, it didn't have the depth, you know, um, that it would have needed to remain unattackable. If you're going to hit slow, then you got to hit deep. You got to at least hit deep. And so Nadal was just initiating his offense with his forehand, off of Rude's backhand. That that means a lot of forehand drive down the line. Uh, sometimes that means just keeping it on the backhand and, and just pressuring that side over and over again. Uh, sometimes it means going to the drop shot down the line. I thought he used that play very well. Uh, sometimes it meant uh, taking you know an approach shot cross court. Like There were a lot of different variations, but as you watch the match, uh, you couldn't help but notice how much offense Nadal was initiating off of Rude's cross court backhand. So now let's get to uh, some film study here. What I want to point out to you is um, how the threat of Nadal's forehand and the weakness of Rude's backhand creates misses. And I want to start with the return of serve. Beginning with Nadal's serve strategy. There it is up on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. He did not hit a single wide, wide serve. These are first serves, by the way. He did not hit a wide serve on the deuce court. Not one. Zero percent. And there, one serve hit the body, but he almost hit 100% of first serves into the backhand third of the deuce court. If he did that, then that would have been the first time I've ever seen someone serve 100% to the same third. On the ad side, um, he rarely went T. He did it twice, 
One of them was his only ace of the match. Uh, so 67% to the backhand, but a bunch of them were backhand body. Uh, basically, he's he's always going to the backhand, pretty much. He's always going to the backhand because he knows not only is he, you know, likely to get an attackable ball on his forehand, he's also likely to get a miss. And he's likely to get a miss because Casper knows that the best thing he can do is make Nadal hit a first ball backhand. And we have talked, you know, in, even in this Djokovic matchup, and Djokovic's return is miles better than Rude's return, uh, we've talked that even Djokovic can struggle to do that. But for Casper, the effort looked a little uglier and a little more futile, and a lot of the times it resulted in misses. So, so let me just show you what this looks like. What this looked like. Here is the first game of the match. Nadal hits a wide serve up 30-15, so fourth point of the match. And uh, Rude's pulled way out wide here. He's way off the court. Okay, what do you do when you're pulled off the court? You want to put a lot of height on the ball, a lot of air under the ball. That gives you time to recover to the middle. And you want to go cross court because if you go cross court, the ball spends more time flying through the air. It's all about recovery time. Okay, go cross court, Casper, right? That's that's what to do. Oh, I'm playing Nadal. I'm playing Nadal. I can't go cross court. I have to go line here. Casper goes line here, and he misses wide. Well, guess what? That's not surprising. How do you go line? You're changing direction, open stance, from about 20 feet behind the baseline, outside the doubles alley. Yeah, you're going to miss. That's too tough a shot. Okay, next example. Um, let's go to set point. First set, set point. This one's just kind of funny, honestly. Nadal serves it wide. Okay, same return, pretty much. Um, he is... Root is, like, in the same position. He's maybe 17 feet behind the baseline. Okay, he moved up three feet. He's still outside the doubles alley. You go cross court. You go cross. Rude takes this down the line and mistimes it so uh, so poorly, so badly, that it hits James Kiathavong's microphone in the chair. This is not normal for a professional tennis player. These are the kinds of things that got people saying that Rude is playing embarrassingly bad. The deeper, the deeper reality here is that Rude is going down the line because he's scared. Because he's scared of Nadal's forehand. And he would be going cross-court and making these returns if he wasn't scared of Nadal's forehand. Now, as great and incredible, the best of all time, easily on clay when he has time, um... As great as Nadal's forehand is, rude. Next time he plays Nadal, you you, you have to uh, you have to be a little bit less scared. You you can't play with such fear um, that that you're missing shots this badly. Uh, so so it is an adjustment for next time, but it's also understandable. Second thing, um, I'm going to give you a second example of why rude. 
fearing the Nadal forehand gets him into trouble. On his um, invertido, on his inside-out, inside-in forehands, Casper would generally go majority inside-out. And it's the same thing, just like a cross court that I was telling you about, where you go, you go cross, you go cross, you go cross. Okay, and then on the very ultra-attackable ball, that's when you go line. Same thing on the forehand. You go inside-out, 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 inside-in to finish. That's just generally what you want to do. For Rude, that's usually to the righty backhand. Even more reason to go majority inside out until you get a really good chance to do a ton of damage. Casper in this match was much quicker to go inside in. I got to go inside in as soon as I uh, as soon as I can because I can't hit to Nadal's forehand. Well, running around the forehand and going inside in means the ball is traveling less time. And you're out of position because you ran around your fo- your backhand. So the counter is very much open if you don't hit a darn good shot. And I mean, like, look at this at uh, break point at love one in the third set. This is very important, this point. Like, Rude needs to avoid going down a break in this third set. Uh, Nadal has all the momentum uh, at the end of the second from winning a ton of games in a row. I'm forgetting the exact number. Uh, but Rude was up a break early in the in the um, second set. So Rude runs around, and he's in the doubles alley here, and he's, again, way behind the baseline, and he's going to go inside in? That's terrible shot selection, ordinarily. Terrible. You go inside in from here, and Nadal is recovered to the middle. You're, you're way behind the baseline. Now, what you can't tell from the screenshot is Nadal's incoming ball was very, very slow. So... Rude did have all day. But still, you're not in good enough position to go inside in here. Rude goes inside in. It's not It's not even good. Uh, it's kind of short. It's not close to the sideline. That's a backhand winner cross court from Nadal all day. And, you know, that might be an extreme example of um, of that. And, and this is a winner that Rude can hardly even go for. That might be an extreme example, but there were so many damaging Nadal backhands cross court off of Rude's inside and forehand. Um, and one thing that Nadal does so well when he sees that is he actually moves inside the court to take time away uh, because he understands that as much as he strips Rude uh, of time to recover into the middle— that's going to make Nadal's cross-court backhand effective and damaging and potentially point-ending. Um, the key on that is positioning. Rude is out of position. He goes inside-in, meaning he's still out of position. So if he does not make it really good, he's in trouble on the cross-court backhand from Nadal. That happened a ton. That's being terrified. That's, that's Rude pooping his pants on the Nadal forehand and not being afraid to go inside out like he normally would. That's what that is. So if I'm Rude's coach, what do I do here? Besides be a little bit less fearful, um, besides learn maybe to flatten out a little bit on the backhand and to just hit it harder and faster. And and who knows if that's ever going to happen, you know, because that it is now deeply ingrained in Rude's technique 
to hit his backhand with a level of topspin that makes it nearly impossible for him to hit the ball fast. Um, so, so besides that, I do think there is an easy fix here that I would implement if I were coaching Casper Ruud. Um, so let's go to this point at one all in the second. And Nadal, um, Ruud hits this ball very deep. So you can see Nadal is actually kind of leaning backwards. He's he's leaning backwards because he wants to put a lot of air under this forehand and a lot of topspin. So so that that technique will actually help you help you do it. It'll help you get your uh, your uh, your racket drop. Uh, it'll I don't know. You know what? I'm I'm actually pretty bad at explaining technique sometimes. So I, I don't find the words as well as like a Rick Macy uh, or a Jeff Salzenstein. Uh, but anyway, Nadal is leaning back uh, because he wants to put a lot of height and spin under this forehand in response to Rude hitting a deep shot. So Rafa is going to do that, and he's going to go to the backhand, and it's going to be moderately deep. Um, and I drew a red line of, of what Rude could have done. Rude knew that Nadal was on his back, on his heels there, leaning backwards. Nadal was not going to hit an offensive forehand. Wasn't going to happen. Nadal was going to was kind of defending, honestly. So what Rude could have done is moved up in the court, held his ground, and taking that take took uh, he could have taken that backhand a little bit early, um, or at least hold his position on the on the backhand. What he actually does here is he retreats. So look at his contact point. I drew a red line of what I'd like him to do on this ball. I'd like him to recognize that Nadal is on his back foot. And, and Root at this point is maybe seven feet behind the baseline. By the time he hits this ball, he is now 15 feet behind the baseline. I'd like him on this ball, I'd like him to go from seven feet behind the baseline to three feet behind the baseline. I think he can, his footwork... He is too quick to back up, too quick to retreat on his backhand side. If your backhand is kind of weak, is kind of slow, well, the worst thing you can do is seed court position. Do you know who I'm okay with backing up? Stan Wawrinka, Dominic Team. Why? They'll back up and they'll hit it 90 miles per hour with a ton of topspin cross court. Go ahead, back up. Back up all you want. You're Casper Ruud. You can't back up. You can't afford to back up so easily. So that was one thing. And again, another thing to watch if you're if you're re-watching any part of this match. Watch how often Ruud backs up. So here's what happens. Ruud is going to do the Nadal. He's going to do the jumping backwards, um, the jumping backwards backhand defense, which is a defensive technique when you want to get a lot of air and topspin under the ball. What does Nadal do here? Is he like, oh, it's high and spinny. Let me back up. No. No. Step up to the baseline. On the rise. On the rise forehand. Winner. Inside out. Rude can't even go for it. See the difference there? There's the difference. That is all I got, my friends. A couple of reminders. Um, Steve Flink interview. I'm not sure when yet. There will be a mailbag. I believe it will be on Thursday. Um, best way to support the channel is to share the video. Um, 
other best way to support the, the channel is to become a member by hitting the join button and contributing $2 a month to support the long-term future of the channel. Appreciate everybody following along with Roland Garros coverage. It is not over yet. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.